Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachrin assistant editor of the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Kevin Munger, assistant professor of political science and social data analytics at Penn State University. We are discussing his insightful book, Generation Gap, Why the Baby Boomers Still Dominate American Politics and Culture from Columbia University Press. Generation Gap is one of the best books I've read all year, due largely to its simplicity and clarity. Generational divides and conflicts are constantly the subject of vitriolic debate. Generation Gap leads with data showcasing how demographic trends and historical circumstances have contributed to generational polarization. Kevin, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Caleb, great to be here. Uh, thanks for the kind introduction and looking forward to chatting. Likewise, you know, this was a, a really fascinating book, I think such a, a relevant book. Uh, and, you know, before jumping into the book, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and why you chose to write it. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I have been doing research on social media and politics for a few years now, ever since I started grad school. And in the wake of the 2016 presidential election in the U.S., there was a lot of attention paid to the topic of misinformation. And when people were kind of scrambling to figure out what that was about, the fact that Older people were much more susceptible to misinformation, more likely to encounter it, more likely to share it, really jumps out of the data. And as I began to look into that more, I just saw more and more evidence that there is a unique situation in the U.S. today in terms of our age and generational makeup that has implications for a wide range of political and cultural outcomes that people care about. I think in most of my research and most social science research, it tends to be more and more policy focused these days. So people are looking for specific pot problems and solutions. And that's great, but it does restrict the temporal scope of a lot of research. And so something like generations, which the cause of the dominance of the baby boomers today 
is first and foremost, the fact that a lot of them were born 65 years ago, which is not something that's particularly amenable to a policy change today, but which does structure a lot of the fundamental conflicts that we are seeing playing out. So I think this is a useful, you know, perspective. It doesn't offer any easy solutions, but hopefully we'll have people thinking about more specific, generationally relevant problems. So, you know, the most prominent generations today are, as you mentioned, the baby boomers, also Gen X, millennials, and Gen Z, uh, without having to like go, you know, through the whole, uh, you know, go over all the details of like what makes these generations unique. Uh, could you give listeners just like a slight overview of the different uh, sort of maybe makeups of these generations? What distinguishes them from typical generations? Sure. So first, a slight correction. Gen X is not important. They need to get over that fact. And they have seeded all of their potential influence in culture because their embrace of the uh, dropout slacker identity. And I say that mostly because many of my colleagues are Gen X and they, they tend to get a bit... <laughs> Shots fired. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, so the intergenerational sniping is clearly part of this discussion. And while I don't think it's irrelevant, it is sometimes used to diminish the fundamental importance of generations. And I do think that there are serious material differences across these generations, which means that they are legitimate objects of social scientific inquiry. So beginning with the baby boomers, my favorite fact here is that Time Magazine awarded this entire generation their Person of the Year Award in 1965. Five, I believe, uh, just for being born. So the award goes to the inheritors, people who were born into an unprecedented era of economic security and cultural possibility. And this lengthy article goes on to explain that the possibilities for the boomers are endless, that they are going to inherit a truly unique set of circumstances, and that they should thus go on to be most important generation, most distinctive generation in American history. And I think that is broadly correct. So first of all, there are simply more of them, as I said earlier. The economic conditions are crucial for their ability to establish themselves in the workforce, establish families, become settled, establish communities. And the institutional context into which they were coming of age meant that all of these major institutions which govern the country today, govern broadly construed, like academia, uh, the major professions, lawyers, doctors, media, were all really growing in this period when the boomers were coming of age. And so this one specific generation is still in power, thanks also to the democratization of old age. So the fact that more and more people are able to live into healthy old age has benefited the boomers first. I mean, it's a great thing. It's, it's, a, it's progress across the board, but it has meant that the boomers are winning both at the beginning and the end of the life cycle. Skipping over Gen X, millennials are the second largest generation after the boomers. They were first called the echo boomers. So before the millennial term emerged, the fact was that we were defined in opposition to this largest and most important generation. And so this conflict has been sort of baked in from the start. The stark contrast comes from the fact that millennials had 
quite poor economic conditions, beginning with the 2008 financial crisis, which really stunted our emergence into the workforce and thus delayed a lot of these traditional milestones of maturation from owning a home to starting a career to being married, having children. And so this period of extended adolescence has really characterized the millennial generation, our inability to make headway in the institutions which are still dominated by the boomers, even as many millennials are now entering our 40s, uh, continues to define this generation that is, I think, the most frustrated by the boomers. And Gen Z has really only started to emerge, looking at the Google Trends data on this, since I started writing the book, in fact. So there were simply not enough of them who were over 18 for Gen Z to be a def you know definite, useful category of adults. But now we're starting to see them as the first generation to be fully raised online. And I think this offers a different set of challenges and opportunities. In particular, I think in areas where new media technology is able to disrupt existing institutions, Gen Z is making rapid headway, but it is far more difficult still for them to enter into traditional institutional power. And in terms of an affective divide between millennials and Gen Z, I would, and this is kind of just cultural commentary, it's not provable or anything. It seems like millennials thought that we were entering a world of promise and that we have had our high expectations uh, somewhat disappointed, whereas Gen Z never had any illusions to that effect and have been have been raised in a period of cynicism and sort of acceptance that the, the world is not going to play out in their favor. So that's my summary. Yeah, I think that that's a, a great summary. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I agree with uh, most of your characterization uh, and your funny characterization of Gen X. Uh, I think I'm like sort of on the cusp of Gen Z and millennial. So I, you know, I don't really, you know, I've Gen Z, the younger Gen Z kind of terrifies me, the internet savviness, which I'm sure we'll get into later. Uh, and then also I think some of the, uh, you know, the anger or frustration that millennials maybe have towards the boomer generation is a little alien to me. And I also think in my generation, uh, too, just not the same sort of frustration because, you know, I was in middle school when the, when the downturn, economic downturn happened. So I wasn't really about to enter the workforce. But mm -hmm. I think that that was a really interesting characterization of millennials. Uh, you know, the, the idea that you talk about in the book that I really found to be the most fascinating uh, and I think is one that, you know, people should talk about as a, as a kind of irrelevant notion is this concept of boomer ballast. And I was wondering if you could describe this, this idea uh, about how it is or why it is that you believe that the baby boomer generation's influence will only grow stronger in the next few years. Right. So the first thing I learned when trying to write a book is that you want to have a theory that can be summarized in two words, preferably alliterative. So I've come up with uh, boomer ballast as what I hope is a memorable but not purely normative term. So I'm not trying to paint the boomers are as either inherently good or bad, but I am trying to draw attention to the fact that they have disproportionate power now and have throughout their life cycle. Uh, 
So the idea of ballast today means, so explaining the metaphor briefly, a ship or a hot air balloon has ballast. It's the weight that is put at the bottom of the vessel in order to give it more stability. And it's not the case that you want to have minimum or maximum ballast. It has to be a balance. And so a trade-off when deciding on the amount of ballast is do you want more stability or do you want the ability to change direction more quickly? And so more ballast means more stability, but more rigidity, less flexibility. And I think that today the boomer's disproportionate power, boomer ballast, means that compared to how things would be developing, our society is unusually stable. That is, it is still unusually defined by this generation in terms of their cultural attachments, their preferences over policy, and their approach to technology. So looking at the demographic reality, Next year, 2023, will be the single year in all of American history where the most people turn 65, the traditional age of retirement. And so on dimensions that are driven primarily by demand, so politics, we live in a democracy, and the demand in a democracy is who's voting, who's participating in primaries and other elements of political activism. The boomers will only become more relevant in this domain as they have a windfall of free time and the kind of unprecedented degree of affluence and health with which to enjoy it. This is also the case for a lot of cultural domains and traditional cultural institutions. So although things don't necessarily seem super stable right now, my argument is that our society would have adapted much more quickly to, and much more fundamentally, to the possibilities of the internet if it were not so demographically top-heavy at present. And we see this most distinctly in terms of the makeup of Congress. We have the oldest House of Representatives in history, the oldest Senate in history, and the oldest president in history today. We also, you know, cross-nationally have the second oldest uh, legislature in the world. Um, So both by historical and comparative perspectives, our government is extremely old. What are the promises and perils of demographic analysis for understanding the future of politics? You mentioned a little bit that as boomers age and have more free time, this will shift their influence on politics. You know, at the same time, too, even though sometimes people say that, you know, older people are more conservative, I, you know, I thought the boomers are the hippies. So shouldn't they be more progressive? Like, what do you see as the, the you know, how, the, the effect that aging will have on the future of politics and demography? So first, the boomers were the hippies. The hippies were always a minority, a loud minority. Second, the hippies have all sold out there. Well, I think what's very distinctive about that generation is because the economic circumstances were so good, people could genuinely be hippies, live a free enviable life in their 20s and then in their 30s decide, okay, I'm going to get a job and I'll be able to buy a house. So there wasn't really a, as much of a penalty for that kind of experimentation. But then when they did decide to adopt more mainstream mores, they were able to and it did largely uh, affect their politics in traditional ways. When people 
own a home, have children, especially women, they tend to become more conservative. Um, in terms of the promises, I think that it is necessary for some things. I think to a huge extent, uh, countries and particularly democracies are people that we, a, a, a country is the people in that country. And uh, older people are different from younger people. I think there is some hesitancy to imply anything except that everyone is the same and for understandable reasons. There's lots of you know, kind of fundamental liberal value is the equality of all people. And I think that's true, but people are not equal throughout their life. If anybody reflects on their own life, they can reflect on how different they are in capacities, in liabilities, in power um, today versus how they were in the past and how they can't expect to be in the future. So I think that this liberal uh, nor normative moral commitment has to some extent disguised one of the fundamental truths of uh, human existence that, that we age, that we age is a defining feature of how we experience the world. And in terms of perils, I think that there are problems with making deterministic predictions about, for example, I mean, a very prominent one now is that as the country becomes more Hispanic in particular over the next few decades, this will be a automatic advantage for the Democrats who have traditionally enjoyed more support among Hispanics than, than among white people. But that could easily change. These are not definite groups. And so making these kind of demographic assumptions is often deeply mistaken. The one case where I think it is not mistaken is when it comes to things like accounting. And so Social Security, we've known for a very long time that because of the math involved in how many people are working versus how many people are retired, Social Security will run out of money in some time in the early 2030s. And at that point, in order to solve the problem, they'll either have to cut benefits to retired people, which is not going to happen, or they will have to raise taxes on the workers, on people currently working. Uh, the latter is going to happen, and this will represent a explicit intergenerational transfer from boomers who were not paying enough when they were working to, sorry, to boomers from millennials and younger generations who will still be in the workforce. Another thing that you discuss about the boomers is how they were such an overwhelmingly or are such an overwhelmingly white generation. Can you talk about this identity of whiteness and its relationship to boomers? Absolutely. So in the cultural imagination, I feel like there is an idea of, of boomers as white people, sort of the stereotype, but it is to a, I thought, surprising extent true. So for a few reasons, I believe it is accurate to say, although the demographic data from long in the past is not super reliable, that the boomers are the whitest generation in American history. The primary reason for this has to do with changing patterns of immigration. So the long-term percentage for at least 150 years, the U.S. population has been 15%, 13%, around that range, foreign-born for that entire time period. The exception is in the 1920s, 30s, the U.S. begins to become much more restrictive in terms of immigration and particularly implementing 
racial exclusion quotas and only allowing people from certain European countries to continue to immigrate. So this means the 1950s, when most of the boomers were children, is the period in American history where there are the fewest foreign-born citizens. That number has since uh, come back, and so in the in their in the baby boomers' lifetimes, the percentage of foreign-born uh, Americans has tripled, which is a pretty significant change. The other side of this coin, in terms of the definition of whiteness, is that this category is of course constructed and has not been stable over time. So other racialized ethnic groups like Jews, Italians, Irish, and, and others were in the period before the, the boomers in early 20th century, 19th century, not really considered white. They still had this racialized status. And as those groups became more integrated in society, it became broadly correct. And today we certainly do call those groups white. And so for these two reasons, it seems plausible to me to say that the boomers are the whitest generation in American history. Speaking on the boomers and just their, uh, their choice of media, you know, what they consume, the, the world that they live in, uh, you describe how, how media will likely change uh, with the, the pa- eventual passing of the boomers. Uh, what, what do you see as the, the sort of the future of media, especially mainstream media that today caters to the baby boomer generation? Well, the idea of mainstream media is a fundamentally boomer concept. I think this is mostly because of the media technology. So the broadcast era that defines our imagination, um, the mid-20th century of media, was a historical anomaly where we have, because of the economics and regulations of those media technologies, very few producers and broadcasters. And so the idea of a mainstream media only really makes sense in the broadcast era. Today, I think although social media is becoming much, much more important, for many politically relevant outcomes, television, uh, cable television and, and broadcast news are still more important for those outcomes. That's really the central point for media discourse. But the audience for television news is incredibly age skewed. So very few people under 50 watch cable news at all. And yet it is the primary source of news for the boomer generation. So although it is so still so focal, I think that there will not necessarily be a replacement. Instead, the millennial and Gen Z media consumption habits, social media first, much more fragmented, will Uh, take over. And that will be the world that we inherit. Now, there still will be superstars and like the fame of very popular social media influencers, streamers, etc. is on the same level as cable news hosts. But in terms of the centralization and lack of competition that defined the mainstream media that I think is going away. This is more of a philosophical question, but it's, it's one that you touch on in your book, uh, you know, what, what constitutes generational identity? You know, where, where does it come from? Right. Well, the origins of identity are quite complicated. But the problem of generations is first really articulated by the German sociologist Karl Mannheim in his uh, influential paper of the same name. And 
he's really describing the generations around the early 20th century and what creates this sense of, of generational belonging. So it's not really enough that you share a birth date with someone, uh, a prince and a pauper, even if they're born in the same year, have very different experience of the world. And as Monheim says, they have different locations. So he was primarily concerned with class, which I think is still a very relevant location for how people experience the world. There are many other such locations. And Monheim says that it's only in the context of shared locations when there is either a shared physical presence, a shared uh, experience of the world, and then geographic proximity, do we see the emergence of generational consciousness. I think today social media offers an alternative, which makes the geographic proximity experience much less relevant. And instead, the shared location is where people encounter each other, which for younger generations is increasingly online. So people define their experience of the world through their experience of media. And so I think, for example, the idea of a generation as a 15 to 18 year long unit is making less and less sense as the media world's inhabited by smaller and smaller slices of demographic time become more and more distinct. So the people who grew up watching the exact same influencers and seeing the same internet trends become the cultural touchstones for these micro generations, which are able to define themselves against both the younger and the older with more specificity. And because geography is no longer a constraint, they are able to encounter millions of, of their fellow generationalists in a way that wouldn't really have been possible, except in very broad strokes, things like going to college or going to Vietnam for the boomers. What issues do you think that younger generations, the millennials and Gen Z, what issues will they face that are similar to previous generations? Every generation's experience of the world is somewhat different. But in terms of the other conception of the word generation, we think of this as uh, parents and children are two different generations. In this, in this frame, it is perhaps the most constant thing in, in human existence. The fact of you know, the old people raise the young people and in, in, they give birth to them and they, they raise them. And then the intergenerational transmission of culture and values, and then the fundamental need for younger generations to move past older generations and the conflict that emerges from the battles over tradition versus progress are certainly going to continue. So that fundamental element of human, the cyclical nature of our existence will continue and be the same for millennials and, and Gen Z and everyone else. This is a, maybe more of a, a question less related to what you discuss, but maybe to uh, other notions of generations like that you might find in like the fourth turning or things like that, of this idea of generations operating on these sort of cycles where every four generations, uh, the next subsequent generation resembles the first generation of the, of the earlier cycle. Uh, what, what do you make of these ideas, these theories, or these uh, 
you know, more so, you know, like on the equivalent of like astrological <laughs> projections. Perhaps, which is to say that I, people find them useful to explain the world that doesn't, I don't think necessarily right or wrong. I'm not convinced necessarily that this is a, a fundamental pattern that always has to exist. I mean, that I suppose will be discovered as the predictions uh, from that from that framework are are tested as time passes. Yeah, I, I guess I don't really think about generations in those terms very often. I, I think there are other features of our economy and our society and our culture which have cyclical components, and those certainly intersect with how generations experience the world. So that does mean that every generation is different, but also the same, and that there's echoes of current experiences in the past. But I, I don't find that framework particularly useful myself. Yeah, and I think that, you know, your uh, approach compared to those approaches feels much more um, <laughs> based on what the data says, as opposed to uh, some a kind of a, a neat uh, framework that puts one, you know, a generation in some uh, holy position to, to overturn things. And, and, and I think that, you know, uh, there is this sort, this sort of idea uh, about Gen Z. Uh, I don't exactly know where it comes from, that Gen Z will be some transformative generation, or maybe the generation after Gen Z will be some transformative generation. So I was wondering if you'd talk a little bit about you know, the, the issues that younger generations face um, and what you see as driving their development and maybe what their political views will become like once they enter, uh, you know, adulthood. Sure. I mean, there aren't that many generations. So, you know, you can pick one, predict that'll be the transformative one, and you've got a you know, pretty decent chance of being right. Uh, I think that what I find most distinctive about Gen Z is that they are the first generation that really is able to consume media that is created for, by, and about themselves. So thinking back to this idea of uh, intergenerational contact and transmission of culture and values, in earlier media regimes, this was done face-to-face, either through parents and children, extended families, or institutions like schools who played the role of bringing up the next generation in the world that the adults already lived in. With broadcast media, we have that cultural transmission to some extent being that role being overtaken by the, the media. But even then, the people creating the media for young people were older people. So there's a continuity there in the broadcast era. And so what I think is distinct about social media, and especially social media which uses audiovisuals, which is the dominant media format, the preferred media format for the majority of people, and in, in many ways the most powerful media format. So this audiovisual content for, by, and about Gen Z makes possible a sort of radical short-circuiting of this traditional continuity and the transmission of culture and values, which I think does create the conditions for a much higher variance in terms of how Gen Z experiences and thinks about the world. Do you have any optimism for the future of generational cooperation? 
your book covers so much of generational conflict, but do you do you see a, a future where maybe millennials and baby boomers can form some sort of a truce? <laughs> well, you don't have to like predict this, the future, but <laughs> no, no. I mean, there's going to be some breaking point when the the number of baby boomers becomes who are retired, but still active and and participating in politics and culture will present novel forms, like novel challenges. And so today I think that American culture compared to many other cultures is so focused on progress that we have kind of a blind spot when it comes to old age. To a large extent, I think this is to our, you know, our shame. We would prefer not to acknowledge that old age exists. Our, our preferred response is to just try to transcend it through every possible uh, bodily modification, health regime, or to shut it away and to put older people in distinct communities where we can try to get rid of them. But I, this simply will not work given the timescales and, and the sheer numbers. And so when the increased need of caregiving for baby boomers becomes more obvious. You know, my hope is that this can produce more intergenerational contact as younger people, more and more young people will need to take care of older people. I'm hoping that this can produce some greater understanding of our shared experiences rather than in a purely mediatized world. The experiences really are so distinct that it makes uh, empathy pretty challenging. I think that that's a nice, you know, that, that would be something like that would be very nice uh, if there was more generational contact. And I think that definitely does seem to be the case that the, you know, younger generation and older generation just don't have as much contact as they maybe would have uh, in the past. You know, I, I was wondering if there's, because generations is talked about all the time, if there are any uh, pitfalls of thinking about generations that you would caution people uh, about, and maybe if there's a, a way of thinking about generations that still acknowledges their relevance, but also doesn't turn them into, you know, the pivotal thing on which history turns, uh, any ways in which you would tell our listeners to, to think or not think about generations. So this is funny. I, so I, 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 I've done a couple of these interviews and the intuitions of my interlocutor differs dramatically onto people's expectations of the relevance of generations by generation. So I think younger people find the argument I'm making extremely intuitive, almost obvious that generations are important. Older people by and large do not. And so I have given that I'm an academic working in an industry still dominated by older people. I find that I'm often fighting the opposite battle, which is people's intuitions are that generations are media trivialities or are made up by advertisers to sell products. And I think that, so there, you know, if I had to rank identities, generations is not the most important one, not by a long shot, not as important for American politics as race or gender or partisanship. But it is still a crucial way that people experience the world. I think what's so confounding about it compared to some of those other identities, which people acknowledge as important, is that generations are necessarily changing 
over time. And so how a generation is, you know, people experience the same things growing up if they're in the same generation, but they, they have, they experience different things. And so what a generation is can change over time. And so it's much more fluid than say race or gender in terms of the status throughout a person's life cycle. No, I think that that's a really interesting observation. Uh, and certainly one that I haven't thought about, about the view that generations to certain generations matter more to some generations, not to others. And that is thing that you discuss, you use that the term cohort consciousness, uh, about how the younger generations seem to have more cohort consciousness and that it is fueled by technology and social media. Uh, you know, in, in addition to your work on generations and, and what you've done with this book, I was wondering if there's, there's anything that you're working on now or that you hope to be working on soon, either related to this topic or to anything else. Right. So most of my work is about social media. So the bridge topic for me was uh, digital literacy, which I think is a very important topic. And, you know, it's analogous to literacy. It's the skills, the capacities that people have to navigate the internet and to use it uh, in their desired ways and to not be deceived or fooled. And I think that there are obvious generational implications, but it's not deterministic in any sense. And in particular, younger generations are quite savvy at certain, certain elements of using the internet, particularly the, you know, within platforms, et cetera. But there is a knowledge of the hardware that people even in my generation needed to have in order to navigate these technologies that is clearly being lost. And so studying the differential experiences of digital literacy by generation is, is something that I'm going to continue to work on. This also, I think, has huge implications for campaign finance. So an area which I only briefly mentioned in the book, but which I think is hugely important in American politics in particular, is campaign finance. And here the donations by older people are so radically higher than younger people that this further amplifies their already significant advantage in, in politics. And this the connection between campaign finance and digital literacy is that I think increasingly political campaigns are designed primarily to defraud older people. So either literally to defraud them in the case of campaign contributions, which have to be given back because they have used deceptive marketing tactics. And we have all of these stories of, you know, grandchildren realizing that their quite elderly parents have donated all of their money to a political campaign, or in some cases, donations are happening even after they pass away, is a significant problem for how political campaigns work. And I think that this is true in terms of informational content as well, that I think that reconstruing misinformation as a kind of informational fraud targeting the elderly is helpful to make the case for a kind of neo-paternalism and you know really taking seriously the challenges that are presented by delivering a iPad to someone who's never used the internet before and who lives by themselves in a nursing home is not empowering them it is only opening them up to abuse and fraud that's a that's a really fascinating framing this idea that campaigns some campaigns are designed to defraud people with uh with a little bit of extra money you know i'm thinking 
uh, of Bannon's wall in particular, uh, which I'm sure is, a, is an example of that. Um, but yeah, that sounds like a fascinating topic and, you know, of course, extremely relevant campaign finance only becomes more relevant as the numbers skyrocket every single election. Uh, so, uh, Kevin, thank you so much for being a guest on the New Books Network. Uh, it was great speaking with you. The book is Generation Gap, Why the Baby Boomers Still Dominate American Politics and Culture from Columbia University Press. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.